Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program. I live in Southern California, Los Angeles. This is Baja Norte. If you do not speak Spanish in Los Angeles, you're missing out on a whole lot. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. And for a very limited time, LeVar Burton Reed's listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash LeVar. That's rosettastone.com slash L-E-V-A-R. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Hi, I'm LeVar Burton, and this is... LeVar Burton Reads. In every episode, I handpick a different piece of short fiction and I read it to you. The only thing these stories have in common is that I love them. And I hope you will too. Well, y'all, today's story is by the author Anjali Sachdeva. And it's really that much richer for knowing a bit about why. She wrote it. It's from her collection entitled All the Names They Used for God. I love that title. And it was inspired by one of her college professors, Leslie Brisman, and a class that Anjali took about the English poet and activist John Milton. Now, if you only know one or two things about Milton, they're probably A, that he wrote Paradise Lost, and B, that he became blind. Milton was born in 1608 and made a career for himself as a pamphleteer and a political activist, writing about freedom of expression and the rights of peoples to hold their rulers accountable for their actions. He was an extremely devout Christian and even studied to be an Anglican priest in his youth. And he agonized over how best to use his talents to serve his God. And he claimed that his great work... Paradise Lost was divinely inspired and written with the help of a muse. Paradise Lost tells the story of Lucifer, essentially God's top angel, who becomes jealous that Jesus is made the Messiah. Now, Lucifer leads a revolt against God and loses and is consequently sent, along with all of his followers, to hell. And then, It tells the story of Adam and Eve's temptation and their fall from paradise. In Anjali's story, she has us visit the elderly Milton as he works with his muse to write the famous Paradise Lost. So, if you're ready, let's take that deep breath. And let's begin. Killer 
of Kings by Anjali Sachdeva. The angel sits at John's bedside, a quill in her hand that may well be one of her own feathers. She wraps the nib against the sheet and says, John, 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 in that sing-song mocking way of hers, her perfect shoulders drooping. He's boring her. He sits up straighter against the pillows and tries to think, pressing his trembling fingertips to his temples. But inside his head is only a blank, hissing whiteness, like a field of shifting snow. Imperfect, she says. Impious. Imperiled. Impressive. Her voice has the low resonance of a cat's purr, so that he often feels it vibrating in his jaw. No, John says, none of those. But what the right word is, he just can't remember. It slips his grasp like so many things these days. The rate at which his body has betrayed him is shocking, and in moments like this, he feels his age settle on him like a cloak of lead. John, she says, we will be here all century at this rate. Tell me something, or the old so-and-so will be wroth with us both. Imprudent, he says, and she nods and moves the quail fluidly across the paper, but returns all too quickly to her posture of waiting, waiting her anticipatory silence. John knows he should be glad to see the angel. He has been blind for six years and should be glad to see anything much less a messenger from heaven. But she frightens him. Bitter white light seeps from her skin, and she has a faint scent about her, like crushed granite and ice. There are times when he wishes he could close his eyes against her and return to the velvet darkness of his blindness. The first time she appeared to him, John woke from a dream of dark and glassy seas and found the angel sitting in a straight-backed chair by his bedside. Without preamble, she said, I've come for your poem. Which one? Oh, you know, the epic, she said, waving her fingers airily. Fall of man, redemption, forgiveness, etc. Your great work. I haven't written it. I'm well aware. A quill appeared in her hand and a board across her lap with a sheet of parchment and an ink pot. She smiled at him as she dipped the pen into the ink. Let's begin. Now she looks at him with much less patience. Something more, John. She says, epics are not made in a day, and for all you know, you will be dead tomorrow. 
I will not be dead tomorrow, says John, else you would not be here with me. But his conviction does not go further than his voice, and both of them know it. It is centuries now since the angel began her work with humans, and being close to them has invoked her curiosity, if not her admiration. They are just so many stories patched together, so many forgotten days encased in bone and meat. One might unearth almost anything with enough searching. Being a muse is mostly this, a sifting through of memories to find something of merit, hauling it to the surface where it can shine. The endeavor has, at the best of times, an exotic appeal. Forgetting is a concept the angel knows only through observation. Every moment of her long existence echoes through her like the unfading peal of a bell. Things she would rather forget every bit as loud as those she would remember. When John was a young man, he traveled across Europe and found himself one day visiting with Galileo. The great scientist was blind too by then and sick, only a few years from death, but still holding court in a borrowed villa in Florence like some gnarled pagan king. If the doting nobles and scientists who surrounded him cared that he had been forced to recant his celestial cartography, that his home was little more than a comfortable prison, they gave no sign of it. Even John, wrapped in the arrogance of his youth, had been tempted to press his forehead to the floor at the astronomer's feet. But he had resisted, had fallen back on his Latin and his quips, and tried to be witty rather than reverent, until the old man interrupted him. A writer, are you? Galileo said. Cursed, even more than an astronomer, full of strong opinions that will leave you cold in your old age. It may be so, said John, too shaken to think of any other reply. It is so. Your too young to know. Learn to smile in the daytime and write your heresies by candlelight, or you will live to regret it. Now, John dreams he is back in Florence. He and Galileo stand face to face, two old men alone in a crowd of chattering admirers. John looks into the astronomer's dark eyes and the sounds of the room around them drop away. A misty dusk envelops them until all John can see are the flames of the candles in the chandeliers high above, flaring brighter and brighter and then plunging like a meteor shower, raining down around the two of them to set the room afire. The angel takes hold of John's hand and squeezes it until the bones ache. Old man, she says, 
Stop daydreaming. And he startles awake and finds himself on the divan by the fireplace, the angel watching him as though she could see right through his skin. Before he became blind, John would never have let someone else write his words down for him, not even an angel. The words were too important. Once upon a time, John fancied himself a killer of kings, and with them, injustice. Though he struck with sentences and not an executioner's axe, he could sit down at his desk at night and write until the sky turned gray with morning, mining truth and smelting arguments together until he had built a palace of reason. The talk in Parliament was all about whether the king should be tried as a traitor to the people, and everyone read John's pamphlets, whether they agreed with him or not. When the king was finally brought to trial and then to the chopping block, still holding his absurd little dog and mewling about his divine rights, John could not help but feel pride in having played a part in bringing it all about. But these days, John is not so sure he is anything but a slayer of himself. Now he is the one who has been imprisoned, tried for regicide, robbed of his books, barely saved from hanging by persuasive friends, and finally confined to this damp house, living under a new king despite his best efforts. His young wife and infant daughter dead within the year. He feels the world closing in around him and wonders how long it can be before he follows them. The bones of John's feet throb with heat like red coals, and his own head might as well be severed for all the good it's doing him. In the afternoons, Andrew, a younger colleague from John's glory days, sometimes comes to visit and sits by John's bedside with a cup of tea rattling against the saucer in his hand. He brings with him all the gossip of Parliament. Andrew has done well for himself, has somehow escaped the censure that John fears will dog him to his grave. But John feels no jealousy, only gratitude that the two of them can still sit together like this and talk. He feels a waft of steam upon his face as he holds his own teacup to his lips. The fragrance of humid Darjeeling plantations rises to greet him. Will you write today? Andrew says. Shall I scribe for you? But John shakes his head. He can think of nothing to say. Though he knows his time is slipping through his hands like the tail of a rapidly shortening rope, it will burn his fingers with its passing and leave him clutching at empty air. The very thought makes him tired. Were we so wrong, Andrew, to want him gone, he says. Hush, John, Andrew says. And John does not need sight to know the fear in his friend's face. When John sleeps, the angel walks long, 
winding paths through the city. Though she could be anywhere she chose, some balmy island or sylvan waterfall, she feels the hardness of the ground beneath her feet, the dust that gathers on everything. She peers into windows and watches the inhabitants of the poorer quarters, their cold, cramped lives. Some are happy, even in their squalor, but so many are sick and weary. And everywhere she sees dirt, filth, such a quantity of ugliness that she cannot find a reason for. She used to know how to accept such things as wisdom, but she has grown weary too. That dirt has found its way into her somehow. Unspoken blasphemies poke against her insides like shards of stone. She wants to say these things to John, sometimes while he sits, unspooling his stories. She has her own stories to share, but that is not her task. Her task is only to inspire, to help him create. Though she would not tell him so, she is as much John's slave as she is the Lord's. In the depths of night, she returns to his room, sits silently by his bedside, watches the dreams scripting themselves against the insides of his eyelids. John is a boy in school and the master is reciting some dry lesson of history. Pliny, or Herodotus, beaten to threads and stretched into an endless droning. It is spring, and the windows have been opened to air out the classroom. Outside, the world is alive with the first traces of color and warmth. In front of John sit two boys who hold the balance of the class in their hands. One, named Hislop, is the master's pet, bland and eager and always ready with an answer, sitting with his head cocked like a spaniel's. The other boy, Reed, is a butcher's son, here by the charity of a wealthy patron, fiercely proud, and John knows ten times more intelligent than Hislop. He rarely speaks, but there is a certain dark gravity about him, and the other boys treat him with deference despite his poverty. He is facing the window, and has been for some time, when the master asks a question. John has never been the best of students, though he loves books and reading, but even he knows the answer. He tentatively raises his hand as Hislop leans forward in his seat, straining toward the front of the classroom. But the butcher's boy does not take his eyes from the window, as though he has not heard. Mr. Reed, says the master, you seem to be otherwise engaged. It was Carthage, sir, the boy answers, but still he does not turn his head. John recognizes the audacity of this, but cannot help looking toward the window, searching for whatever holds Reed's attention. And he sees that many of his classmates are doing the same. And what is so interesting 
that you must leave off our discussion to gaze out the window like some lovesick girl. The biggest hawk I ever seen, sir, in the oak tree. I want to see it fly again. The master takes his stick from where it rests and cracks it against the table. All the other boys turn immediately to the front, flinching in their chairs, but John continues to watch Reed, who turns slowly, clearly reluctant to miss his chance at the hawk. Come here, says the master. Hislop snickers, and in that moment John conceives a loathing for him that will last him the rest of his school days, perhaps the rest of his life. Reed walks to the front of the room and, without being told, holds out his hands, which the master paints with strokes until they bleed. Reed makes no sound but a rough grunt between clenched teeth, and when his punishment is concluded, he returns to his seat, passing the window on his way, and only John catches his triumphant grin as the bird, indeed a magnificent one, dark brown with a mane of golden feathers, launches itself from the crown of the oak and plunges to the field below. In the days to come, John will replay this moment when his reading or his lessons lose his interest or as he lies in bed at night, waiting for sleep. Something about that grin delights and haunts him. Whereas before, he might have respected Reed. He treats him now with a hushed reverence. A boy who cares more for the freedom to direct his own gaze than for the master's anger is a rare creature indeed. The next morning, John wakes early, while the house is still quiet. He reaches for the bedside table, and his fingers find a pen, some parchment, his bell, and suddenly his mind flares into full wakefulness. He rings the bell for the maid, and as soon as he hears her footsteps in the doorway, he says, I woke late last night and wrote, read it back to me. She takes the paper from his hand and the silence stretches out. I can't, she says. My penmanship is not what it was, I'm sure, but try. It's not that. It's only... You've written all your sentences stacked on top of each other. I can't read a one of them. The paper's nearly black. Her voice is filled with sincere regret, but something else, too. Call it doubt. So, that is it, then. The fruit of his night's inspiration. Some hundred lines layered together like a surfeit of angels crammed onto a pinhead, crushing each other with their dancing. Sometimes John thinks he has always known this poem, that it has underlain his life like the seeds of a field, waiting for the ray of sun that will call it forth into the world. 
Other days, he thinks he will weave it together from images and sounds and bits of twine that he has found here and there through the years and stored in his pockets until he had need of them. There was even a time, decades ago now, when he began to write the poem. But it withered in his hands like a plucked flower. And so he learned to leave it alone, to let it grow in silence, until the silence consumed it, until the words fell asleep again beneath his skin. Now he wonders whether he will ever find them. everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Let's get back to our story. Still nothing for me? The angel asks. John looks especially tired today, but she can summon nothing more than impatience for his frailty. What can I say? He will not be pleased. I need more time. You all say that. It is like one unending echo down here. I don't even know where to start. Start with yourself, she says. That works for most of you. The silence accumulates around them. Her patience is wearing thin. Sometimes she wishes he would simply die and thereby secure her release. Have you always been a muse? John says. The angel sits up straighter. I was a soldier, she says. I fought in the Great War 
Then I guarded the gates of heaven. Eventually, it was decided I should have some other occupation. It's only you don't seem to like people. He must be very tiresome for you. Or perhaps it is just me. I pity people, she says. Your lives are so filled with misery. Even for one such as you, it is inescapable. Sometimes this world appears to be designed for suffering. Sometimes, she stops, draws a sharp breath. Her words shift within her like nervous birds. They long to go winging, and one loud noise will send the whole flock exploding outward past the paltry gate of her tongue into the world from whence they cannot be reclaimed. Her silence is all that stands between her and disobedience and whatever punishment that entails. John is looking at her now with a keenness she has not seen in him before. Instead of a broken old man, he looks like a dog who has scented prey. I asked for you especially, she says. I heard a rumor about you that you wrote a pamphlet saying rulers must be measured by their deeds and prosecuted if they are found lacking. I did. I said that it was right to kill the king. Do you believe that still, that those who rule must give way if they are not just? Even she can hear the febrile edge that has crept into her voice, but John does not seem alarmed. For the first time, he looks at her as though he understands her. I do still believe it, he says. How glorious to be an angel and know you serve the only truly just ruler to be found in all of creation. The angel presses her lips together until they blanch, nods tersely, and looks away. Hosanna, she says. John, says his mother. She is somewhere behind him in a hazy, firelight-soaked kitchen. His friends have gone off to play outside, but he has been sniffling lately and she has kept him home. The room smells of simmered beef bones and parsley. Farther back in the depths of the house, John's father is playing the violoncello, a slow ribbon of notes that weave themselves into the brickwork, punctuated by periods of silence as he writes down the melody. John breathes on the windowpane and swipes at it with the cuff of his shirt to clear the frost away. John? His mother says again, but he barely hears her. Outside, crouched on the windowsill, is the Cooper's cat, a big marmalade brute named Sully, now spotted white with snowflakes. Between his forepaws, he holds a bird. It is a plain brown sparrow with rumpled feathers and eyes blinking rapidly. Sully moves his paws apart 
and the bird sits stunned for several seconds before it leaps for the sky. John swears he can feel those wings tickling against the inside of his chest. His heart leaps with the bird, but before it has risen a hand's breadth, Sully swipes it down again, pins it into the snow. The window pane slowly frosts over, and John does not wipe it clean again. But John can't remember this now. It's too long ago. He's too old. That snow-dappled cat has faded from his memory, as has the bird and its struggles. Only a pair of ragged wings remain, fluttering in the darkness of his mind, harrying him onward to something he cannot yet name. The next time John sees the angel, he says, I had a thought. Yes, she says. I thought that I would start the story in hell, not heaven, with the fallen. Her face remains impassive as a rock. With the devil, he says, lowering his voice and raising his eyebrows, vamping for her attention. She smirks before she regains her composure. That is your choice, she says. He must have been furious. I have heard. What else have you heard? She looks steadily into his eyes and picks her words carefully. Rags and scraps. There is no gospel in hell. I would like to hear it anyway, he says. She nods slowly, her whole face relaxing as if she had been holding her breath until this moment. That is your choice, she says again. If you ask me to tell you, then I must. She seems as though she is speaking to someone else, her voice high and clear. But then it drops back to its regular low rumble, and she begins to tell him stories. By day's end, they have filled a score of pages, and the angel reads them aloud, her rough voice thrumming with their cadence. When she reaches the last word, they look at each other with excitement and dread to see the apocryphal tale so sharply alive on the paper, crackling with pain and fire and recrimination. In that moment, John realizes that for all her world weariness, her millennia of existence, she is younger than him in one way. She has never known firsthand the consequences of rebellion. He feels suddenly protective of her. Look at me, he thinks. See what happens to dissidents. Listen to the story you are telling. But before he can speak, the angel looks up and says a quick, soft word he cannot understand. And then, the white light of her presence 
is snuffed. John sits alone in the darkness, listening to the muted crackle of the logs in the grate, the soughing of the wind outside the house. That night, he sleeps fitfully, falls back to the dark ocean of his old dreams, but the waves that hold him now are rough ones, pitching and heaving as though a great storm approaches. When at last he wakes, he feels as if he has washed up on some distant shore. He opens his eyes, looks to his bedside, and is startled to see a new face looking back at him. This angel sits just as the other did, with a parchment and quill poised on his lap, but his face is blandly pleasant, and the light he emits is more like sunshine than lightning. Hello, he says. Shall we begin? Where is she? John says. The angel raises his eyebrows in mild surprise, as though the question were a strange one, even rude. Called away. Are you ready? John is shaken. He wants to call her back, but realizes he does not even know her name. We were working. I want... We were writing. Let us move along from there, the angel says smoothly. There is something inexorable about his soft insistence. Perhaps later you will wish to change that part. Let us write about the glories of heaven, he says. And John, stuttering, agrees. Years pass before the book is finished. When at last it is complete, John asks Andrew to read it back to him. As John listens to the first pages, it is like hearing someone else's voice, the voice of his own beloved, seditious angel, though he has not seen her again in all these many years. He is moved by the pain and beauty of the lines, but pricked, too, by their blasphemous edge. Angels stalking about the garden like bullies. The father and son a pair of sparkling tyrants, and the devil filled with despair to wring the heart, clothed in beautiful metaphors and adamantine defiance. John hears in the mosaic of the poem all the images he has collected throughout his life, but something else as well, another tone, another thread that speaks in sympathy with his own heart, but in a bolder voice. It frightens him. He knows as well as anyone the price of antagonizing kings. He waves Andrew to silence, says to him, I must make it clear that these are her words. Whose words? Clear to whom? John shakes his head. He finds himself near tears. We will fix it. We will give her the credit due to her. 
It wants an explanatory prologue or an invocation of the muse. It wants her name upon it. Even as he says it, John asks her forgiveness for being unwilling to own his complicity in what they have created, to accept his share of the punishment. You ask too much of a sick old man, he thinks. You, who will never be sick or old. Andrew turns a few pages of the manuscript and the parchment whispers and scrapes against itself. Whatever you believe is best, John. I cannot think how it could be improved, but who knows a work like its creator? It must be clear, John says again, and taking the bell from his bedside table, he rings it violently to call the maid, filling the room with its peals. Peace, John. She is coming, Andrew says, and lays a hand upon his arm. In the quiet that follows, John hears the footsteps in the hallway rapidly approaching, the rustle of her skirts as she brings the ink pot and the quill. I know I've talked about it here before. I was, um, I was raised a Catholic. In fact, even studied for the Catholic priesthood when I was younger. And my worldview um, at that time was shaped very much by Catholic dogma. My idea of heaven um, and hell, um, my idea of God, was very much shaped by the Catholic Church. When I was a kid, the devil was like the boogeyman, right? And, um, and hell was where you went when you died if you were bad. The Catholics had something called purgatory, where you go is kind of like a waiting room to get into heaven. Um, you you, you got to get burned for a while before you're worthy to, to ascend, to go up to, to heaven. Um, but my point is that I'm so happy that I was able to form and formulate my own relationship with what I consider to be the divine or divine energy. And I'm married to an atheist. And as a person who considers himself fairly spiritual, um, I've learned a lot from my atheist wife. Um, I don't think she's changed necessarily uh, any of my own personal beliefs about, you know, God or the afterlife. But she has planted some seeds. I'll call them questions in my mind. And one of the things that I'm asking myself these days is, if there is a God, why 
would that entity condone or even enable, create all of this suffering? It was such a surprising moment in the story when his angel disappeared, right? And, you know, as a young Catholic, I was really, really familiar with the idea of the consequences of disobeying God, right? I mean, the, the thought when I was little was, was that even for the tiniest infractions, that God was this punishing force. And I don't believe that to be true anymore, necessarily. Um, that, that God is up there keeping score. I mean, I, th- I tend to think that it's more, that karma is more immediate than that. That sometimes we don't have to wait lifetimes in order to balance the scale. It certainly does make sense to me that, that in some ways we are being punished mostly by our own deeds. You look at the environment, you look at the state of this nation, you look at the division in our country. These are not the results of angels or demons. We did this shit. And in that sense, I believe we have to figure out how to fix it. There is no one coming to save us. As my friend Olivia says, we are the ones that we've been waiting for. Our producer on this episode of LeVar Burton Reads is Julia Marie Smith. She's the best in the business, y'all. Our researcher is Lakeisha Lewis. So glad you are aboard, my sister. Editing and sound design by Justin Asher, one of our new kids on the block who's not so new anymore. Our sound engineering is by Brendan Burns and my favorite engineer, LeVar Burton. My thanks to Anjali Sachdeva for allowing me to read her story today. If you liked it, please check out her full story collection entitled All the Names They Used for God. And if you like this podcast, one of the ways you can show it is by sharing an episode with a friend. You can also leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts and include a story suggestion for us. And if you would prefer to listen to episodes ad-free and also have access to some exclusive bonus author interviews... You can do that on Stitcher Premium. Go to stitcherpremium.com slash LeVar to start your free trial. LeVar Burton Reads is a production of Stitcher. Our executive producers are Josephine Martirana. She is the boss and yours truly, LeVar Burton. And I am LeVar Burton. You can find me on Twitter at LeVar Burton, LeVar.Burton on Instagram, or my website, LeVarBurton.com. I'll see you next time, but you don't have to take my word for it.
Stitcher. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.